Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter, at MacArthur1880, or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. Today we are here with Alan D. Boyer, author of the book Rocky Boyer's War, An Unvarnished History of the Air Blitz That Won the War in the Southwest Pacific. Welcome, Dr. Boyer, and thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to come share your research with us. Thank you very much, Amanda. I'm glad to be here. It's a great opportunity to to do a podcast for the MacArthur Memorial, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so first question, who is Rocky Boyer, and what inspired you to write this book? Rocky Boyer was a farm boy, a communications officer, a university professor, and he was my father. He was a communications officer with a fighter-bomber unit in the Southwest Pacific in 1943 to 1945. He kept a diary, and um, I got around finally to turning it into a book. Describe Rocky's path into the service. He was drafted before Pearl Harbor. He was drafted in June 1941, the morning after he graduated from college. And uh, he went into the Army. He didn't particularly want to go into the Army. He served in the military throughout the war. In 1942, he transferred to the Air Corps, and he became a communications officer. And in 1943, they went out to the Pacific. So he arrives in the Pacific near the end of 1943, and his unit is part of General Kenney's 5th Air Force. Um, What is the role of the 5th Air Force in the Southwest Pacific? In the Southwest Pacific, the 5th Air Force had effectively become the strike component, the spearhead of Douglas MacArthur's forces. George Kenney said somewhere, and I've never been able to find this quotation again, that the Air Forces in a military force in an army are the units which are in constant contact daily with the enemy. Uh, So they are fighting offensively, and that's what the Fifth Air Force did. It uh, fought the Japanese. It prevented the Japanese, in a defensive mode, from reinforcing their army in New Guinea. And logistically, the Fifth Air Force moved troops and supplied them in late 1942. They moved the 32nd Infantry Division up from Australia to Port Moresby. And then they moved most of the 32nd Division over the Owen Stanley Mountains to Buna, which made possible the winning of that campaign. They moved uh, troops, they moved the supplies that fed them, and Robert Eichelberger, who was the general, the American general commanding the American forces at Buna, said that they would have lost that fight without George Kenney's heir. George Kenney also was given to making such statements as, the artillery in this theater flies. So, uh, the 5th Air Force was the artillery. And it also became something of the tank army that Douglas MacArthur never had. The 5th Air Force spearheaded the offensive that took MacArthur's forces to the eastern coast of New Guinea, uh, to the Markham Valley. The pattern was established early on. They would um, pick out a logical site. They would crash land an airplane there. They would see if they could fly it out again. If that could be done, they would bring in C-47s, make rough landings with C-47s. They would fly in Australian infantry and American engineers. They would bring in more troops, more engineers, construction equipment. They would build a new base. And you would have moved the front line forward by not infantry assaults, but by building an air base there and then bringing in troops to supply it. 
that's what they had been doing. Uh, they were very effective at it. And uh, that's the part of the war that my father wound up seeing as they moved north, island by island. A lot of historians consider General Kenny a genius when it comes to running an attack air force. Um, in what ways was he innovative and visionary? George Kenny would have been very pleased to be remembered for attack aviation. Attack aviation was a, a pet phrase of his. Maybe it's fair at this point to remember what Admiral Barbie MacArthur's admiral said about Kenny. He said charitably, knowledgeably, Kenny was not interested in any aspect of the war that did not involve an airplane. Kenny was a visionary man. He was innovative. He was an MIT graduate, I think we should recall. He was not uh, a West Pointer. He'd gotten into Army aviation during the First World War. Completely independent of attack aviation, he is remembered by the Air Force for having declared the Air Force's independence from ground commanders. Uh, that's him, the artillery in this theater flies. That's what he meant, and he would be the ones who decided when the planes flew and where they flew. In the Southwest Pacific, uh, Kennedy shifted away from high-altitude bombing. He had shifted to attack aviation, and by attack aviation, uh, he really meant strafing and skip bombing. Skip bombing is when you fly a plane in very low at the masthead height of a ship, and just before you hit the ship, you pull up and release your bomb so that ideally the bomb will skip across the water into the side of the ship and, and sink it. He worked on that. He rehearsed that. He built planes that could do that. What that really meant was that he had a number of lightweight bombers, B-25s and A-20s, which were medium bombers and not really suited to high-altitude strategic bombing. What they did was to fasten as many machine guns on these planes as they could do, and so they turned some lightweight aircraft into fairly lethal strafing airplanes, and then they used them to skip bomb. His relationship with MacArthur was um, very cordial and very, uh, I suppose, affectionate on both sides, respectful on both sides. MacArthur called George Kenny my buccaneer. Um, the general could be eloquent when he chose, and he never hit a better uh, character description than those two phrases, my buccaneer, because that's really what Kenny was. He liked sinking enemy ships, he liked raiding enemy strongholds, and he liked telling stories afterwards of his men's daring do. MacArthur found that Kenny was completely reliable. He could be entrusted with the running of an air war. At one point, there's an air conference, uh, excuse me, a press conference where the press asks General MacArthur, where are the bombs falling? And MacArthur says, the bombs are falling in the right places. George Kenny knows where they're falling. Ask him. He handed, handed off the, uh, the air war and he handed off the response to the press, which we might say about Kenny, uh, something else we might say about Kenny is that Kenny is also, so to speak, a a world-class public relations man born wrong. He's adept at spending stories. He can always handle the press. He likes to work the press. He likes to tell stories. Uh, he'd been an excellent spokesman for anybody, and he was one for uh, the 5th Air Force. So back to Rocky. Rocky and his unit cover over 2,400 miles from Port Moresby to the Philippines during the war. Can you take us through a timeline of his experiences as the island-hopping campaign moves forward? Yes, let's do that, because that really gives a picture of the air war throughout the Southwest Pacific as it stretches all the way from Australia to the Philippines. In September 1943, just before he reaches Port Moresby, they've built the first American bases on the east side of the mountains at Leahy and Nadzab. And in February 1944, he and most of the rest of the 5th Air Force move across the mountains to Nadzab. 
At that time, NADZAB boasts of being the world's largest air base. Uh, I think there are 20,000 men. There are dozens of squadrons of planes. They have uh, hard stands for 500 aircraft there. The next leap is up to Hollandia in April, and from they move further along the coast. Just to give a sense of the geography here as we go, from Port Moresby, when they landed, they are concerned about the Japanese Navy at Rabaul, which is off to the northeast, and the Japanese Army at Wiwak, which is off to the northwest. If we think of Port Moresby as being roughly at Pensacola, and I picked Pensacola because with that long coast dropping off to the, the right uh, in New Guinea and in Florida, if the 5th Air Force is headquartered at Pensacola, which is where they were at the time when my father landed, Rabaul is at Charlotte, North Carolina, and Wiwak is at Nashville. When they make the long leap to Hollandia, it's as if they moved from, uh, well, from Pensacola to Oklahoma City. They then go to Biak in May, and that's way out in the Oklahoma Panhandle. And then we have the tremendously long leap to the Philippines. In October, uh, the, the Allies liberate the Philippines, begin the process at Leyte. And that is uh, 2,000 miles north. That's up on the Canadian prairies around Alberta. Uh, by the end of the year, they've reached Mindoro, which is just south of Manila. Mindoro is 2,400 miles from where they've started. Um, that's on the coast north of Vancouver, if we're thinking of the North American continent. My father was at all of these places as they moved forward here. And at the end of the war, he's on Okinawa and Aishima, which is about much closer to Japan. So that's where he was at the time. Pappy Gunn, Charles Lindbergh, and Richard Bong feature in the book. Did Rocky ever cross paths with them? He crossed paths with two of them, although I'm not sure either of them knew this at the time. Pappy Gunn, of course, is nearly always called the legendary Pappy Gunn. He was a very good flyer. He was a self-taught aeronautical engineer. He was the one who built the, the Strafer B-25s that everyone talks about, and rightly so, in the South of Pacific. My father and Pappy Gunn crossed course one night when my father heard a series of explosions and gunshots, which marked a practical joke being played on Pappy Gunn. We have still not finally found out what exactly happened that night, not least because they buried the story, but that was his contact with Pappy Gunn. He didn't know it, neither did Pappy, but they were there. Richard Bong, of course, was a leading American air ace in the Pacific, and ultimately for the entire war. He and my father were at NADZAB at the same time. Uh, Bong's P-38 was gleaming aluminum, which was new then, and he had 27 Japanese flags painted on the fuselage, and everyone else seems to go out there to photograph it. Uh, so to speak, NADZAB was a great deal like a campus. All the men are college age or just older. And uh, Richard Bong and Tommy Lynch, who were flying around as a flying circus, were the big men on campus. You would see them around. You might even rub elbows with them briefly. Something my father said once was that they would ride back from the airfield in the same truck as uh, Bong and Lynch. Charles Lindbergh, he also... Uh, crossed paths with somewhat. Charles Lindbergh, back in the 20s, had belonged to 110th Observation Squadron in St. Louis when he was a National Guard uh, mail pilot. The 110th Squadron was where my father finished out the war, and at one time Lindbergh would have found the squadron full of his old friends. Lindbergh came out to the Southwest Pacific in 1944 to help increase the range of American planes. At that time, however, he spent most of his time with fighter pilots. What the 110th saw of him and heard of him was mostly rumor. 
but my father uh, did hear about Lindbergh being there and may have seen him. They were at the same place, Biak, at the same time. The book just gives a very interesting look at the air war in, in places like New Guinea, but you write in the book that it's not the Pacific War of standard histories. You also talk about Rocky's later fondness for the book Catch-22, and this theme runs through the book. Can you talk about this a little bit? I'm glad you like the book, and I hope that people will find it uh, interesting, and I hope they'll pick up some similarities to Catch-22, and maybe to uh, From Here to Eternity, and maybe with even the Kane Mutiny. When I was growing up, when I was a kid, all World War II Pacific history seemed to be about dogfighting with zeros. And that was not the sort of war that my father talked about when he talked about it, which wasn't often. The stories he told about accidents and crashes and all sorts of fatalities that way, negligence, waste. He mentioned one pilot who had been killed when trying to dip both wings of his airplane into the Kuna grass. He talked about another uh, B-25 crew who were killed when they were shot down by mistake. The anti-aircraft gunners were just too jumpy that afternoon. And I wanted to write a book that would tell about what he had experienced. I wanted to include all the accidents and the delays and the, 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 acts, uh, the casualties and the snafus, both the ones that he had seen and to point out what had gone on around him, which was part of that. And that is the unvarnished, quote-unquote, side of the history. New Guinea was also, uh, if we're thinking of the surreal or absurd side of Catch-22, a strange place to fight a war. John Wayne came through with the USO troop, for example, and the highlight of the USO troop was not John Wayne, the cowboy action hero. John Wayne was the master of ceremonies, and the star of the show was a trained operatic baritone who was belting out show tunes from Oklahoma. Everybody loved it. When they flew over the mountains to Nadzab, um, they flew over the mountains. They flew up an absolutely beautiful, unpeopled valley. They bounced their, P their the C-47 to a halt. And the first thing that happened there was a black man on a motorcycle rode up. It was the quartermasters, the black quartermasters who built the airfield and they were unloading the planes. You find strange things which would not have happened in peacetime, perhaps. You find quarrels among growing men over latrines. You find officers who keep playing office politics in the middle of a tremendous raging war. You find a colonel who spends all of his time planning for his own creature comforts, designing his dream house. Uh, that's part of what's in the book, but also I would really like to point out that Catch-22 is often a very realistic novel. Joseph Heller has one absolutely funny, absolutely true phrase about what it's like to be a bombardier in a B-25. He says, when you're a bombardier riding in the nose of a B-25, you are a goddamn cantilevered goldfish in a goddamn cantilevered goldfish bowl. Uh, that's a very descriptive phrase. It's one my father would have understood. One of his friends died in exactly that position by being a bombardier in that sort of nose. And so I put that in the book, too. I also added at one point that um, my father was not Yosarian. And I pointed out that his commanding officer, Colonel David Hutchison, was not my little minder binder by any means, thereby slightly suggesting, slightly suggesting maybe that Colonel Hutchison was like my little minder binder, and perhaps he was. He was a reconnaissance flyer who had turned into a military engineer. If he wanted an air base built under Japanese fire, Hutchison was the man to do it. And he did that at Nadzab, he did that at Wakti, at Biak, in the Philippines. And at the end of the war, he was tasked with building, I believe, 32 airfields in 37 weeks to attack Japan. 
This is something that Milo Minderbinder might have essayed, and I don't doubt that Colonel Hutchison would have succeeded at it, too. You write a lot about how combat stress was a major problem for the air units. Is this something different than what infantry or sailors faced in this war? To a certain extent, perhaps it stands out more for airmen. New Guinea was one of the first places that Army psychologists ever studied combat fatigue. They also called it arrow anxiety. And although they've renamed it since then, they absolutely got a sense of what it entailed. The stress of flying missions in combat wore out pilots. They simply could not keep running on adrenaline forever. And the problems of the tension were exacerbated by the, the lifestyle or the lack of a lifestyle. They kept on living a life of monotony and routine. They had very little to give them rest. They had no breaks. They had no excitement. Uh, they began making mistakes. For example, they will try to rush when they make a landing. They'll try to beat an aircraft to the landing strip. And uh, sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Crack-ups result. They lose interest in the war. They lose interest in camp life. They stop eating. They begin to lose energy. And they become listless. Uh, the Air Force at one point talked about a squadron of listless fighter pilots, which is a, a very strange contradiction in terms. You don't that, want that to happen at all. Now, this was different, I think, for airmen, uh, different than it was for sailors or infantrymen, because the anxiety is not focused on battles. The air war goes on nearly every day. You don't have a period between invasions or between campaigns. And combat is not the only situation that causes stress. Aero anxiety is caused by airfield accidents, by crashes, by explosions. These are always going on around an airfield. And a psychologist just wrote that the degree of scarring is high, and that, he said, all airmen showed some effect. So that was the, the problem there. They tried to remedy it uh, with movies, with USO shoes, by uh, rotating troops to Australia. They tried to deal with the problems of airmen not eating by encouraging them to... Uh, build aircraft to run fat cat runs, they called them, to Australia. Uh, they would bring back plane loaded with steaks and fresh vegetables, basically. Uh, they'd also have beer runs. They would allow them to do that. And the risks, in, in the middle of a war zone, the sort of risks from combat fatigue are so substantial that it outweighs any risks from, you know, being drunk on duty. And they can control that. They can't control the anxiety. Was there no rotation policy that would allow experienced pilots to go home? They tried to do that. You know, they didn't want to keep their men there until they wore out. They really didn't. Field Marshal Slim on the British side said that, you know, any man has to be relieved before he is cracked. And they understood this very well. The simple problem was in the South Pacific that they could not get the number of trained airmen that they wanted. They simply could not. They were at the end of the line. Most of the airmen for a very long time were being sent to the European theater. It takes two years to train a pilot, even close to two years to train a gunner. So once that pipeline has been set up, most of the airmen are going to continue to go there. George Kenney was offered crates of aircraft, whole groups of crated aircraft. They were offered to him on condition that he find the pilots and the mechanics to put them into the air from his own troops in the theater already. What finally emerged as a compromise was that air crewmen, flying personnel, could be rotated home, and very often they were. The catch of this, of course, was that they remained liable to be rotated back, and sometimes they were, back to the same squadrons a bit further up the New Guinea coast. Ground personnel, like mechanics and communications officers, like Rocky Boyer, my father, learned that they were staying put until the war was won. 
and they come up with such slogans which you see in uh, Yank Down Under, uh, such hopeful slogans as Golden Gate in 48, Carolina in 49, or even Dixie in 60, that's possibly the most pessimistic. The NADZAB Wingding, which is a Fifth Air Force paper, uh, takes a rather satirical but understated perspective on this. Their way of complaining about rotation policy is to print each month the names of the men who are actually going home. Each month, there are about a dozen of them out of the 20,000 airmen at NADZAP. So people would see that and know it was possible, but dependent upon transportation, dependent upon resources. If you were a ground crewman, you were probably staying there until the end of the war. Rocky's diary ends in the Philippines, but obviously the fighting continued. Can you take us through to the end of the war in September 1945? Yes, I'll be glad to do that. He stopped keeping the diary in the Philippines because, he said, things got too busy. There was a typhoon. There was another typhoon. The Japanese dropped paratroops on them. Whenever the Japanese raided, it wasn't one or two planes at night. It was 10 or 12 planes in the daylight and whole swarms of Japanese fighters rose up to oppose them. So he stopped writing in mid-November. December 6th, they fought the Battle of the Airstrips when the Japanese dropped paratroopers on them. On December 26th, he flew across the Philippines to a new field at Mindoro. A few hours later, he found himself involved in the last Japanese naval raid of the war. A Japanese destroyer and cruiser squadron came in to bombard the airfield, and they went down that evening to load up as many planes as they could fuel and to arm them with all the bombs that they could find. And so he fought in that. After that, uh, they stayed on at Mindoro under fairly constant Japanese air attack until in February they moved to Luzon. They moved to Lingayen, which was a huge base. Uh, the airfield was at Ben Mali, north of Manila. And they stayed there for several months. They flew ground support, they flew reconnaissance, they flew strafing missions in support of troops in the Philippines. In August 1945, the 71st Tactical Reconnaissance Group, with which he was affiliated, moved to Aishima, just off Okinawa. They were flying missions there, preparing to invade Japan when the war ended. And I think, like every other serviceman who saw them, he kept to the end of his life a photograph of the white-painted Japanese surrender planes. He was home in November. And uh, at that point, Rocky Boyer's war in the Pacific came to a close. What did he do after the war? He wanted to farm, but he could not afford it, so he went to graduate school in psychology instead. They recalled him during the Korean War, and he went to uh, Pope Air Force Base just outside Fort Bragg. He wanted to finish graduate school. He had had the ambition back in 1941 also to, to teach high school math, and he finally realized that in 1955 when he moved down to uh, Mississippi. He had married by then the girl he wanted to marry probably about 1942 or 1943. Uh, they moved to Mississippi, and he taught at the University of Mississippi until about 1989 and kept working there afterwards. He uh, eventually died in 2008. When you were growing up, did he ever say anything about General MacArthur? He thought that General MacArthur, I suppose he would have used the word, maybe had a dictionary to choose from. He might have said, stuck up or a popinjay, but he would have added, he was a good general. I think he would have said that. He quotes approvingly somebody who said pretty much the same thing. He didn't think MacArthur made many mistakes. Uh, like all servicemen, he resented a little bit unfairly the White House that uh, 
was built for MacArthur above Hollandia, which MacArthur never really occupied. He recognized that MacArthur won the war in the South with Pacific and liberated the Philippines and done it with very few casualties. I think he would have understood that he fought a war of maneuver. Well, thank you, Dr. Boyer, for coming in and talking to us today. The book is Rocky Boyer's War, an unvarnished history of the air blitz that won the war in the Southwest Pacific. Um, very interesting look on the war in New Guinea. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.